0: Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature. And we speak to authors who bring this to life. In 2018, author Nandini Krishnan published a really controversial book. It was called Invisible Men and it detailed how India's transmasculine network works. Female to male transgender people, or transmasculine people as they are called, are just beginning to form their networks in India, but their struggles are not visible to a gender-normative society that barely notices, much less acknowledges them. While trans women have gained recognition through the extraordinary efforts of activists and feminists, the brotherhood as the trans-masculine network, often refers to itself, remains imponderable diminished even within the transgender community for all intents and purposes they do not exist in a country in which parents wish that their daughters were sons they exile the very daughters who become sons this book remarkable in what it set out to do furrowed its way into a lot of controversy We catch up with Nandini Krishnan on this episode of India Books, a podcast where we lean in to the idea of India through its literature. Tune in on the podcast to learn about what made the book so controversial and above all, how Nandini asks and answers the question about what does manhood really mean. Nandini Krishnan is a writer, a journalist, a stage actor and a comedian. Her first book was hitched and it was about the modern woman and arraigned marriage. Her latest book is Invisible Men, which looks at India's trans-masculine network. An extract from her novel in progress was one of the five winners of the Caravan and Writers of India Festival contest. Nandini lives in Chennai, where she spends most of her day rescuing her manuscripts and her books from the eight dogs and four cats who own her. Some of those friendly dogs and cats you're going to hear on this very show. Welcome to the show, Nandini. So glad to have you with us here. Hi, Arishi.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Great. So, Nandini, how did you uh, actually decide to write about, you know, the whole trans masculine aspect uh, of india's communities it's such a unknown subject right uh, because even when he, in popular perception huh, and and i'm not even talking about an, an actual nuanced understanding right a general understanding of this is so driven by by women trans women right and the whole trans masculine aspect or the brotherhood as it's really lost
1: yeah, actually, I think the story starts back in 2005, 2006. I was living in the UK back then. And at the time, they just passed a law which allowed people to change their genders and the gender that had been assigned to them to the gender that they wished to identify by. And at the same time, they were also contemplating a law to legalize uh, same-sex marriages, and they called them civil partnerships. So I was a student of journalism back then, and I wanted to do a story on the trans women community in the UK. At the same time, I, because at that time, my only uh, introduction to the transmasculine community, I think, was uh, through the film Boys Don't Cry. And I found that in the UK, there was a large trans masculine community. And that made me want to explore whether there was such a community in India as well. And uh, as part of my research, I'd I'd also come to India and uh, I'd interviewed trans women here. And when I asked around, they introduced me to one trans man, uh, Selvam, who features prominently in the book Invisible Men. And he told me at that time that he believed he's the only one in the world who was like this. And then I said, no, there's a huge community of people who are transmasculine in the UK where I live. And then he said, uh, oh, but then I think I'm the only one in India who's, you know, from this community. And when I checked in on this about 10 years later, 2016, I found that there was a a growing network of transmasculine people in India. And that's what made me write the book. I think especially because around that time, uh, there was was also the ongoing case in uh, the Supreme Court to uh, strike down Section 377 to write it down. And uh, I think that's all. That was part of the motivation as well.
0: So I uh, I also understand this that uh, trans masculine networks or trans men um, were actually even excluded from the transgender bill piece altogether, right?
1: Initially, yes, because uh, in fact, they'd used the pejorative uh, term eunuchs, which uh, is not supposed to be used because I guess the people who are drafting, uh, you know, the bill were just so ill-informed and they didn't really take into consideration things that the community itself was asking, by which I mean the entire transgender community, that there are so many kinds of people on the gender spectrum uh, you know whether it's uh, whether it's trans women or uh, intersex people or trans men and to them they didn't understand that there were all these differences and they just used the word eunuchs and said okay uh, this is the only category that exists
0: so this actually um, and and since we, we've begun with this I actually want to Apart from Selvam, I think one of the things is the book starts off with an introduction uh, with a reference to Amba and Sheikhandi. And how do you think mythology uh, plays a role? And of course, you've um, actually mentioned multiple times that you don't confuse mythology for religion. Mythology is literature. Um, and But how does mythology, especially in the popular space, play a role in how Indians view and understand uh, trans men or trans women?
1: So that that's a very good question. Um, I think one of the reasons I was very particular about saying that um, mythology shouldn't be confused with religion is that if you think of mythology as having been written by someone or by some people and sort of passed down the ages, then you start seeing it as a product of imagination of people, right? So whether these gods or these characters really existed or not at some point, as characters, they've been imagined by someone or by some people. So, which tells us that at some point, uh, you know, in in ages long ago, maybe thousands of uh, years ago or tens of thousands of years ago, people were still thinking about gender. So it's not a novel concept. So I think that was part of the reason that I decided to bring in mythology. And it's also to familiarize people with the with the fact that they already know of this, you know. Because, like you said, uh, many people think, okay, transgender equal to trans women. But then it's not really the case. Because what would you call Amba and Shikhandi? What would you call Shikhandi? Uh, he's not a trans woman. He is a trans man. Okay.
0: Another thing that I have always wanted to understand is, is how difficult it is. And of course, I'm sure you've been asked this question umpteen number of times as a cis woman and and of course since cis women are having a conversation on this right the the burden of authenticity if I may call it right the burden of um being truthful uh, and authentic but at the same time um being able to reflect or talk through another's lens of a reality that say you personally have not lived right how did you manage the the set of burden of expectations how did it change and and did say a particular kind of social construct etc make a difference to that um
1: yeah i think that's very that's a very valid question um it is it is sort of Uh, hard I think not so much to write about a community when you haven't uh, lived their lives because that's what journalists do I mean you don't live the life of anything that you cover right like let's say whether you're looking at victims of uh, a natural disaster or you're looking at a particular uh, community it doesn't have to be a lived reality and usually it is not um, but I think the hard part comes from, as you said, social constructs where there's a lot of dialogue now about who has the right to write about whom. And uh, in my view, the more voices we have speaking about uh, important issues, the better. And the one thing which I was very clear about and which many people in the community who I uh, asked for advice told me also was that make yourself vulnerable. And I decided I would. Uh, whether it was speaking about misconceptions that I had had or things which I had uh, understood as I wrote the book, as I did my research. I think there's also a sense of my personal growth from my very, very limited understanding to a much better understanding, though obviously not a complete understanding, as I progressed with my interviews with meeting people. And I was honest about that, which also I think um, has led to some backlash because people were able to pick particular sentences which uh, they deemed offensive but I think I'm very clear about the fact that certain things stem from my personal ignorance and the ignorance of a lot of cis people, a lot of people who haven't lived their life that I'm talking about in the book and it's important to put all of that out there that okay this is what we thought or this is what we think, this is what I thought, this is what my friend thinks and Maybe the book has changed a few of these perceptions. Maybe my research has changed a few of these perceptions. So I was also very clear about the fact that I should allow trans people to tell their own stories through me. So um, you will notice that in the book, a lot of a lot of it is in first person. A lot of uh, a lot of the book is uh, direct quotes because I didn't want to be the custodian of these stories. I didn't want to be the one saying this 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 happened. He went there or she went there, and this happened. So I was very particular that though it might seem odd, though it's not entirely recommended that you put a book in chunks of direct quotes, I did want everyone to hear the different eyes in the story and not just my voice.
0: I think it's it's a brave thing to do in a way as well, right? Because as an author of a work, there's always a temptation, I guess, to make something your own fully, right? Right. And even when you're narrating stories or voices that don't belong to you, uh, some of it, I don't know, it's just my thoughts while we have this conversation. It's almost a simultaneous act of bravery and vulnerability. You, you, While you've made yourself vulnerable in the process, you've also dealt with the vulnerabilities of so many people, right, that you've had to absorb through the process. And, and then to almost quote them is to slightly distance it and and let the onus be on their stories and not on your writing if I can call it that.
1: Thank you Uh, that's lovely to hear but I guess uh, I've always been a bit of a uh, I've always been a bit jittery about uh, taking ownership of a story that is not mine that's also partly why I left mainstream media because um, in the early 2000s, when I'd start when I started working as a journalist, we were moving towards a model where the journalist put himself or herself at the center of everything. You know, uh, sort of like maybe like Oprah Winfrey does or Barkha Dutt does in India. You kind of become the eye, and I wasn't very comfortable with that. I felt that as a reporter, my job is to uh, remain in the background largely, and uh, to comment on my perceptions and my changing perceptions but I can't pretend that I know everything about something that I'm writing about. So I guess for me it was very natural and I was comfortable with this sort of voice and also a lot of the people that I met uh, became and are very close friends now and you know a, a lot of uh, relationships sort of form like uh, there are Four particular trans men who call me either Didi or Akka, which is Tamil for uh, Didi, um, you know, who whom I see as brothers, and they see me as their sister, you know. So it's a very kind of so they've become much more than friends; they've become family. Uh, many of them, many of the people whom I'd interviewed, and therefore, I guess it was also that uh, I had to make sure that they were comfortable. Like I might let's say you and I are speaking for maybe the third or fourth time now. And I might say things even in the interview, which I think, oh, okay, I'm saying this to Ayushi without the awareness. Uh, though I am aware, and as we are recording that this is going out to the world, I might think of myself as okay, just speaking to Ayushi, and I might say certain things which I might later want to withdraw. You know, uh, but in a setting like this, obviously, I know this is an interview. But then, when you're writing a book and you're speaking to someone who hasn't been interviewed before. These are things that you should be very sensitive about, which is why I made sure that every single word I wrote went out uh, to every single person whom I interviewed. You know, everything that I'd spoken with them specifically, because privacy was also an issue. So if I was speaking to B, I couldn't send that entire chunk to A. So every single thing I was quoting and also everything I was writing about uh, each person whom I interviewed, I sent back to them, played it out to them again, and asked them if they'd need a translation, uh, sent it in form and said I pay for a translation if you need it and uh, so I got everyone's consent with what was written about them and uh, you know what they had spoken as it was going into the book not just before the interview.
0: You know if I may go on a limb and say this as Indians we are not the most uh, aware of the importance of privacy and this is a complete side part but uh, but quite the norm to, say, pick up uh, people's uh, posts uh, online and repost them without permission. So something f- for something as trivial as that, uh, to something which is, as you've said, becoming the I, um, there is a spectrum around which Indians really don't do well <laughs> when it comes to managing privacy and content, right? Because For some reason, we've been taught to be as inclusive as someone's business is like an act of care almost right from the moment when you're young and you're asked you how much did you score to who are you marrying (laughs) to when are you getting pregnant right
1: very true so
0: that actually brings me to my next question how do trans men deal
1: with the social lives uh you know that's um, so there are like, I mean, I, I'd spoken about the fact that, you know, once I got a bit of a shock when I spoke to a couple, uh, you know, a, a trans man and his partner and, uh, you know, I interviewed the trans man first, and then his partner said, oh, was it a deep interview? And then he said, oh, no, no, it was just facts. And then I said, what do you mean by deep interview? And they said, oh, there are various kinds of interview, you know, like you can have an, an interview where they just ask us facts, then they can you can have a deep interview where they ask us about the emotions at every uh, juncture of our lives. And then we can have this kind of interview and that kind of interview. And that's when it struck me that they've been used to so many intrusions and so little regard for privacy. And in fact, uh, the two of them said, you know, you're not asking us enough questions. You're not asking us about our lives, uh, you know, to the extent that we expected. And then I said, well, this is only the first time I'm meeting you. I'm going to be meeting you three or four more times. And I think I need to be comfortable enough to ask certain questions so that you're comfortable enough to respond to them. And uh, they were a bit surprised by that approach. And I think just like you said, there's also this one thing which um, I think is also taught in journalism schools in India where they say, okay, you know, you're the journalist, you're there. It's almost like the sting operation culture. You're there to find things out and put them down. And once somebody says, okay, you can interview me, you can just record everything you want and put it out there. And I was very, very firm that this is not what I would do because you're not reporting on something. You're not looking at a political intrigue. You're looking at people's lives, people's personal lives, and you're putting it out there for the world. So... Consent at every level was important for me. And it also couldn't be something that I just did and went off. So there's nobody, except I think a few activists whom I interviewed only once because they have access to all the media they want. They have access to um, literature festivals, to blogs, to things where they can make their voices heard. So with them, I would ask them a few questions uh, about uh, which, which didn't need too much uh, personal narration. So, them I would have interviewed probably once, but every other person whom I uh, quoted, I met many, many times.
0: I have a thought, on Nandini, here that how does the telling of the personal narrative right shift? Does it always um, become a warmer relationship? And, and I think you did mention that a lot of people have become like family to you, right? But but does it happen the other way around too? And this is, of course, just curiosity. Uh, uh, but it, and and I'm probably coming uh, from the notion that there's there's so much dramatization around the whole uh, say, sex change narrative, for instance, or uh, or just the sexual aspect, uh, you know, of relationships. That do do the first few conversations, uh, tend to be around what you want to hear as opposed to what needs to be heard. Uh,
1: that wasn't how it happened for me i can't I can't speak generally, but from my reading of newspapers, from my reading of coverage of uh, sensitive issues, I think that what you said is a very valid question that does tend to happen. a lot of a lot of people tend to seek certain quotes when they write an article or when they even when they write a book. They tend to want to hear certain things. Uh, so for me, I had to go with a clean slate, you know. Um, and obviously, it couldn't be an entirely clean slate. I also had to confess to all the misperceptions that I had had, to all the ignorance uh, with which I approached uh, the issue. So I was prepared to hear things that I hadn't expected to hear. But I was also surprised when people told me particular things, you know, uh, like the first time I I'd written this as an article once, uh, the, my first my first uh, approach to the transmasculine issue was through a long form article. Uh, and in that, I think I'd said something about, you know, uh, the, I'd said something like the men in the house had been born women, the women in the house had been born men. And when I played it back to someone, they said, oh, you know, you should be very careful about saying born women and born men. You should use the phrase assigned male at birth or assigned female at birth. And this was not something which I had thought of. And that surprised me. And I realized, like you said, how there can be these little, little intrusions of which maybe even the writer is not conscious, you know, assumptions that we make about someone simply by having a different perspective, a different life experience.
0: It's actually such a beautiful thought, you know, now that you've you verbalized it that way. We never tend to think of these things as roles that we're assigned, right? For instance, I never say I was assigned Hinduism at birth, right? But I have. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it's uh, And it really changes your perspective. And I'm sure like a lot of lay people, who read the book and, and came to you and discussed it with you, uh, came from these perspectives, right? And thinking that you're only born in a particular way, or or, it, or it's a certain disorder, which is like the favorite thing to say, you know, that it it's something
1: that can be worked out of you as if it's a fever, right? yeah i think that's one perspective or that it's something that is uh, uh, that can be cured or that is incurable that is something that it's, it's a deformity or a, you know a disorder that you're born with so those are the notions which uh, like like i said there's so much misperception about uh, about the transgender spectrum that we don't even realize and and i include myself in this because at the beginning of the book i didn't uh, beginning of my research i should say back in 2005 2006 I just assumed that uh, intersexuality and transgenderism were pretty much the same thing. I didn't realize that there were so many crucial differences that a trans man, for instance, could have had a biological child before uh, the sex change. And these were things which I discovered as I did my research uh, for a project back in 2006. And later, you know, 10 years later, when I started my research on the book, I would meet people um, who had who had been assigned female at birth, for instance, who had married cis men because their families understood them to be cis women and who had had biological children uh, before sex change operations. So uh, these were all things which were... It was a a whole different world which just brought home to me how much we take for granted about the world uh, simply because of our privilege.
0: Also, of course, you know, just like any other aspect of our society, we are a deeply fragmented, diverse, polarized nation, right? How do you say things like class dynamics, for instance, play out, um, play themselves out, right? Because the heart of your book is really about the whole network and community that exists, which say has been, um, which say has found a voice a home, say, thanks to the internet, right? But but access to that is class privilege as well right so how does how do the disparities play out between the classes in terms of acceptance of uh, their own journeys or extrinsic acceptance which of course we've not reached as a society at all but but say access to healthcare or um, access to support communities
1: There is a huge, huge, huge benefit within any community that someone who comes from a caste or class that is privileged by its very nature, by its its very access um, has. And this was brought home to me in multiple ways, like class privilege, yes, I mean, right from having an English education, uh, right from having qualifications which entitle you to earn much more money than someone who comes from a working class background who some who might not have completed his or her education right from having parents who uh, maybe are not broad-minded but with whom you can have certain conversations because you have the confidence to have them simply from having had a certain education these are all factors uh, you know which which uh, come into play uh, in terms of class privilege and also in terms of caste privilege now these are things which Some people in the transmasculine community took issue with my writing because they they didn't. I think one of the problems that I faced was that um, a lot of people didn't like the fact that I had also spoken about the fissures within the transmasculine community. And quite ironically, when there was some backlash also to the book, uh, these things came home to me again, you know, because a lot of the people, like I said, I, I became very close to many of the people whom I interviewed. And after I had written the book, some activists whom I had interviewed, some transmasculine activists, uh, took issue with the fact that I, as a cis woman, had written this book and that I was attending LibFests to speak about the book, that I was also on uh, panels discussing uh, sexuality and gender while being cisgender myself. Um, So when this happened, uh, I think one group made a video uh, where people whom I'd interviewed were asked to say that I had uh, broken privilege and things like that. And one of the people who'd been interviewed, uh, who'd, who'd been asked to do the video, called me up and said, I'm really sorry, but I had to do a video where I spoke against you and there was nothing I could do about it. And I said, what do you mean? And then he said, uh, no, these, you know, I, I can't do certain things because they've told me that, Unless I cooperate with them, they won't help me in future. And I'm really sorry, but I had to go ahead and do this. And 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 then somebody else said, uh, you know, that there are lots of people who will want to speak up for you and say that yes, you you have portrayed us uh, in a, in 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 all our different moods, in in all the all the different fissures, everything that sort of. Uh let me do this again like let me do this part again Uh one person told me that uh, there are lots of people within the community who will want to speak up for you who will want to say that it's important that people also are aware of the differences within the community the differences of opinion within the community but it's not easy for us to say that because there are certain people in power who will delete us from the group and that's our entire support network this was this was uh, sort of uh email group that existed an interweb sort of thing a support group so you see how class privilege uh, also gives one control over networks within a minority within a disadvantaged community so it is it is a huge issue And the same goes with caste privilege. This was not something that I wanted to speak too much about because I hadn't been inside the community enough to see how caste plays out. But there are people within the community who have spoken even in the book about how caste, about even how, like when I went to the Northeast and interviewed trans men from Manipur, uh, they were speaking even about racism that mainland Indians, as they refer to us, uh, have against uh, people from the northeast and this is no different within uh, the transmasculine community for instance where one of them actually told me like they said oh but you know uh, you people can never look very masculine because you don't grow a lot of facial hair and these are little little ways in which uh like class caste race ethnicity all of these things do play out in a big way within any community, and like, and it's, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, there are fissures within the trans masculine community too on the basis of this, just as there are across uh, across communities across India.
0: Also, does religion make a difference? Uh, I mean, I know we spoke about all of this, right? But, but, and I'm specifically asking this in the context of, say, for instance. Uh, we know that certain religions specifically call out, uh, and, and I'm not just saying this for say trans men or trans women, but spectrums of LGBTQIA+ community as as against religion, right? Like homosexuality uh, for monothe- for many monotheist religions has always been something that it's, you know been been uh, worded in scriptures almost as no. Right. So how does, say, being this, um, being, uh, I, I would actually uh, say that not just being trans, but how does this whole spectrum of sexuality um, and assigned gender roles versus sexuality versus gender relations play out in the context uh, in, when when religion is also a factor in India?
1: That's an important question. That was one of the reasons I wanted to speak to people of different religions, you know, like right from, like you were saying, uh, who had been assigned different religions at birth and who themselves followed different religions. Uh, So the Abrahamic religions by which I mean Judaism, Islam and Christianity do very specifically speak about uh, the union of a man and woman by which they mean a cis man and cis woman uh, and by which, by default, they are assigning heterosexuality to the couple. By which they also say that, um, that you know, uh, that like sex should be, uh, reproductive, that it should be procreative, not recreative. So these are very specific things which religions assign. And also, I think Hinduism today. I mean, though. When I grew up with Hinduism, I understood it as being a religion, which was kind of like the Greco-Roman and, you know, Egyptian religions in that it was more based on mythology and you could interpret it the way you wanted. it. Now, more and more, I find that in India today, uh, where we are, where our ruling government is the BJP, where RSS ideals are spread across The country where you get trolled for saying the simplest things, where you are accused of uh, hurting religious sentiments and uh, being a seditionist at the drop of a hat. I think Hinduism has become such a closed religion in India, and so many things are are kind of thought of as uh, being as violating Hinduism that. There is really no difference between the Abrahamic religions and the religions which have all this mythology to fall back on. This was a point I made at many lit fests, you know, that uh, in 2009, um, when the Delhi High Court had struck down, had read down Section 377, a lot of, a lot of uh, news channels had this one conference that they carried between uh, people, uh, various godmen, uh, Islamic clerics, uh, Christian priests, Hindu religious heads, all of them sat at a table and they agreed on simply one thing, that we don't have a right to choose whom we fall in love with, that we don't have a right to choose uh, someone like consensual sex between people of the same gender should not be allowed by law. So this was the one thing that all religions agreed on, which made me think just how narrow-minded all these religions are. And their one common point is that they are happy to ban something which people uh, within within their religious communities actively desire, that they actively give their consent to. So I think that was also one of the reasons I made so many references to religion in the book, so many references to mythology, and I've quoted sections from the Bible, sections from the Quran, which uh, make allusions to uh, both homosexuality and uh, and gender choice versus uh, gender assignment. So this was this was sorry. Uh, I was just saying, this was something I really wanted to bring out how religion in many ways can clamp freedom.
0: You know uh, this is uh, I. Uh, it's very interesting that you bring this up because I was reading the essay that you wrote right. Um, uh, g- you think back at trolls and people who had taken the book out of context and and there was that whole effigy of the book being burned and you said that somebody who's loved a book can never burn another uh, and you know one of the things that I thought was this is also very uh, of course burning effigies is, is a popular form of protest the world over uh, but no one takes to the streets uh, burning things as frequently as we do whether it's India losing a cricket match, or a book, or um, or any any such smear activities. So, um, I have I think uh, before I ask you the last set of uh, questions, one last thing that I want to ask, and I've deliberately not wanted to talk too much about say surgical transitions etc. Because I think that's heavily fetishized and becomes unfortunately the only lens through which trans people are seen even though it's, it's a passage for them as opposed to their lives right I mean for instance if you had chemotherapy uh, and, and I'm just using that as an analogy because it's an, it's an expensive and arduous process uh, your entire life won't be just chemotherapy right so, so one's life can't just be a transition surgery or a set of medical interventions but One question that I really wanted to ask Nandini is, what did you find about the medical infrastructure and the health infrastructure in our country that actually supports this? Because I think there's not too much conversation around general health and medical conditions and just too much focus on, you know, this before and after of the individual and not of the health infrastructure in the country that supports them.
1: That's an important issue because a lot of the the problem is that a lot of the benefits to which trans people are entitled are not given to them unless they can provide proof of having undergone surgery. So it's almost as if your physical attributes determine your gender. It is not almost as if it is according to the government, as if your physical attributes determine your gender, which means they don't even take into account whether somebody is somewhere on the gender spectrum where someone may identify more with the male aspect but not want to undergo surgery whether someone can or cannot afford surgery none, none of these things is taken into account there is no infrastructure which exists to help people uh, take on take up take on surgery even if they desire to but don't have the means to like for instance in the uk where i also cover this uh, to an extensive uh, amount um, the, the National Health Service, the NHS, does provide for people to undergo uh, gender change operations at public expense uh, if they so desire, just as someone would be entitled to, let's say, chemotherapy at public exp- uh, expense if they are part of the NHS. So in India, that, that is absolutely not there. You know, insurance companies don't cover this most of the time. In fact, right now, uh, you know, right after the suicide of Sushant Singh Rajput, there is a lot of talk about mental illness. And uh, I think the the courts are asking why the government uh, doesn't direct health companies, insurance companies, to also cover uh, mental health treatment, uh, and, it, and and that is a very crucial question that isn't covered anywhere. Now look at, look at something like gender dysphoria. When you are assigned a gender at birth with which you don't identify, when you grow up being seen as something which you don't think of yourself as, imagine the accumulated trauma, imagine the kind of access to uh, psychiatrists and counselors that one would need. And it is not just beyond one's financial means. Um, It's also entirely beyond the thinking of governments. It's sometimes beyond the thinking of hospitals. And clearly, it's beyond the thinking of the legal infrastructure, you know, uh, where everything just hinges on whether you have had surgery or not. And once you've had surgery, there are your certificates, you get your gender change, uh, whatever, all all your documents done. And then no one really cares about your mental health. So these are very important things, both physical health and mental health. Emotional health—all of those are very nuanced aspects of healthcare, which uh, in India, unfortunately, we don't even think about.
0: Thank you so much, Nandini, for actually sharing—you know—your perspective and your experiences. I think we've spoken a lot about the the book and uh, and had very intense conversation. Before we break off, I actually want to ask you a few questions as a reader and as a writer uh, and and uh, I think uh, it'd be a nice uh, and a bit of a break from uh, this conversation because honestly for me and I, and I don't know what it's like for those of you who are hearing the podcast it's given me a lot to think of and you know uh, ponder over simultaneously while listening to you and it's Quite a lot to absorb, Uh, so thank you for that. And um, and I just want to break off and understand you a bit as a reader as well. So I'm going to give you random preferences, Nandini, and you tell me what would you rather read. Would you rather read fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Would you rather read poetry or prose?
1: Oh, that's that's very difficult. It would depend on the writer. I mean, like, if you gave me something by Jeet Taill, for instance, whether it's poetry or prose, as opposed to most other people, I would pick him. So,
0: Okay, would you read uh, something that's a classic or something that's more contemporary?
1: Oh, God. Are you pointing a gun to my head? Do I have to choose? (laughs)
0: You can say both, but (laughs) where's the fun in the the decision-making then? I think think classical. Okay. Uh, Would you rather be featured in a third-person narrative or a first-person narrative?
1: Mm, Third-person, because I'd also be curious uh, to know what someone who's writing about me thinks about me.
0: Okay. If you want to de-stress with a read, will it be a romance read or a dramatic read?
1: Oh, dramatic. Anytime.
0: If you want to, um, if you only have an option to watch the movie or read the book, what would you do? Read the book. And if you had to choose a genre on which your life would be based, uh, what genre would that be?
1: I think Comedy. Because I love uh, comedy, especially dark comedy. And like my favorite shows are Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld. And to me, that reflects so much of how our lives uh, run, you know, like something as simple as, for example, waiting at a restaurant to be called. And, you know, people who come in after you have got tables before you because they have a larger party or a smaller party or whatever it is. And just the mere frustration of it. Just the way that our lives play out with so much irony constantly. So I think um, comedy would be the genre issues.
0: Okay, that's that's actually quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one last question, Nandini. What is what is the book recommendation, apart from your book, that you would like um, to recommend to people listening to understand sexuality, gender relations, the entire space? spectrum of LGBTQIA plus community better?
1: Um, I don't have book recommendations to understand that because simply for the fact that not a lot of uh, books have been written by the trans community or about the trans community. There, there are some. Uh, but then again, a lot of these are narrow perspectives in the sense by which I am not, this is not a criticism, but like for mine would be a narrow perspective because it's a cisgender perspective on lots of trans masculine people. I've interviewed a lot of people here, but none of them can obviously go into their entire life experiences. Whereas you might have an autobiography by, let's say, Lakshmi Narayan Tripathi, who is a very famous trans woman, um, where she only talks about her life, uh, you know, but you don't have, let's say, an insight into other trans women's lives to that extent. Um, So there are lots of, I think one has to read a lot of books, but I think a better place to start would be the internet because uh, just like you said, uh, now the internet access, we didn't speak too much about that, but thanks to the the fact that uh, smartphones are ubiquitous, that uh, internet access is much cheaper now than it was when we were growing up. A lot of people are speaking in their own languages, not necessarily English, about their own experiences. So if you just, uh, you know, it's, if you if you key in let's say trans masculinity in India or transgender people, there are lots of YouTube channels by trans people across the world, by transgender people across the world, by the people on various parts of the LGBTQIA+ spectrum. So I think uh, asexuality, for instance, is a very important issue that most people don't even consider. Like people don't look at the various spectrums of being asexual. So, all of these, I think, are things to which one has far more access online uh, through videos and through blogs than through books. Got it. Thank you so much,
0: Nandini. To everyone hearing this podcast, Nandini's book, Invisible Men, as well as Hitch, are both available on Amazon and online bookstores. Please, please give them a read. Um, You uh, should definitely, uh, if you like this podcast, uh follow Nandini on her Twitter handle and uh, and don't troll her. Though this, of course, is a joke. Um, I don't know why I make these inappropriate jokes. Uh, but, but thank you, Nandini. It's been lovely to have you here. And uh, it's been wonderful to actually uh, learn some of these perspectives and understand what really went into the making of something uh, that was so fragile and um,
1: so difficult to do, I'm sure. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm glad you. I'm not the only one making inappropriate jokes here, so that's, that's lovely. But Ayush, before I go, I have to ask you, what what genre of uh, literature or uh, cinema would you like your life to be dramatized as? Um,
0: this is, uh, I actually, uh, you know, there is an Alan Moore quote, uh-huh. which I really love. Um. It's, uh, it's what I think uh, really makes uh, up what every time, I mean, and because I uh, keep asking people this, right, and I I like quoting Alan Moore, who said that my experience of life is that it's not divided into genres, (laughs) it's horrifying, romantic, tragic, comical, science, cowboy detective, (laughs) so, uh, and because my mother might be listening to this podcast, i will not uh, but do Google that quote uh, <laughs> to see what the last genre would be.
1: It was lovely listening to you. It was lovely hearing you uh, speak about your genre preference. And I wish I'd asked you this upfront, because then I would have just said, yeah, all of them to every question you ask.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Nandini. <laughs> Nandini Krishnan is on Twitter. Do not forget to follow her and order her book from Amazon or an independent bookstore near you. Forget to tune into us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Smartcasts.